everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's Wednesday. It's kind of a cloudy, windy day. You know, spring is funny weather here sometimes, but uh, thanks for joining us. Boy, we're, we got a lot going on today. Um, this is an action-packed podcast episode. Got a lot to share with you. We're going to talk a little bit about the Derek Chauvin trial. Not too much, but I want to use that as a springboard to talk about a bunch of ideas for um, police reform and really criminal justice reform that I think can make a big difference to resolve a lot of these problems that we're seeing with police and with the way some people are affected and, frankly, some people are being killed. So I think we can talk through a lot of those issues. And, of course, I welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream here on Facebook and on YouTube. But I'm also going to get into some interesting conversation about the San Diego City budget that is being proposed by Mayor Todd Gloria. And then we're going to really, at the very end of the episode, for those of you who live here in my hometown of Poway, California, the city in the country, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the thrift store controversy here in our small town. So got a lot going on. We've got some national issues to talk about. We've got some San Diego County, City of San Diego issues to talk about. And we're going to also talk about our little neighborhood town of Poway, California in this episode. So it should be a real fun one. I encourage your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Just type them in and I'll be happy to read them on the air and we can have a bit of a dialogue as we go through all of this. Um, Yeah, but before we get started, um, last night I went to the Padre game. It was my first... uh, trip back to Petco Park, I think probably since 2019. And a good friend of mine invited me out there. He's a big Brewers fan. And we had a great time. And um, I'll tell you what, it, it was a little different, you know, the the fan experience. I mean, there weren't as many people. We were kind of spaced out. So there wasn't as much energy in the crowd. Um, and the Padres didn't play very well. They lost 6 nothing, But um, you know, there's still a lot of great places to eat. We went down to the first, the ground level and got uh, food from Cardiff Tri-Tip. And if you've ever had that, that is unbelievably good. And had that uh, meal there with some coleslaw, some potato salad. And just uh, the greatest thing about baseball games is you get to watch the entertainment on the field, but you can also have a great conversation with a good friend. And it was great to catch up with my buddy and talk about our families and the things that we're experiencing these days. Um, but it was nice to get out to, to the to the ballpark. And unfortunately, the Padres lost. They faced a hell of a pitcher. Um and what's his name? Burns. Corbin Burns, I think. Is that right? And for, for the Milwaukee Brewers. And the guy was just electric. And the Padres just, frankly, they couldn't hit him. But, you know, the Padres pitching is doing really well. I guess they have the best ERA in all of the major leagues at 2.50, which is amazing. So they're just struggling to find their stroke. Hopefully their hitting will start up here pretty quick. They got a day game going right now, and then they're going to be uh, going up to L.A. this weekend. So let's hope for good things there with the Padres. Um, okay, let's um, let's get in now to the, the Derek Chauvin trial and Again, I'm not going to dwell too much on the trial itself. I mean, that was covered, you know, constantly in the media. It seemed like whatever station you turned on, especially on cable news, they had like live feeds from the courtroom. And and there's been all kinds of reaction from people out there. I just want to make a couple of comments. But again, I want to use this as more of a springboard to talk about criminal justice reform. Now, Derek Chauvin was found guilty, and I think that was the right decision. Um, You know, clearly he 
killed George Floyd. He used excessive force. He choked the man to death. And um, thankfully, you know, he was held accountable in a court of law. And and that was kind of nice to see. I mean, because, you know, the stories you hear from, you know, especially from, from black people where they say this kind of stuff happens all the time, but police officers are not held to account. Now, I'm not saying all police officers are bad, but there are definitely some bad apples in the bunch for sure. And a lot of times people are abused. People's rights are violated. The police are supposed to protect and serve, right? But a lot of times they're violating the very rights that they're supposed to protect. In this case, George Floyd has an inalienable right to his own life, and yet it was snuffed out by by um, Derek Chauvin. So I think it was great that you know, we've got more cameras. Not only do the police have their cameras, but all of us, you know, we've got our, our phones, you know, and when someone's arrested in the middle of the street, it, there's accountability. I think this is great. It's, it's makes things transparent, right? Whether they say that sunshine is the best disinfectant. So a lot of this apparently has been going on, you know, for a long time. And you know, I'm sure people can share their stories, but it was good that now this is getting out. And those bad apples, you know, those those police officers that do violate people's rights, they're being found guilty in a court of law. I think that's a great thing. That's justice. That's accountability. Um, you know, I was wondering, God, it only would have taken one juror in that bunch to really be, uh, you know, um, uh, Blue Lives Matter, you know, like support the police officers no matter what kind of person. Imagine if it was a hung jury and and. Derek Chauvin was let off from this. I mean, we would have had some serious um, violence, I think, in the streets in many of our big cities in America. So thankfully, that was avoided. Um, But it is interesting to hear some of the commentary, particularly from some of our right wing friends, our, our conservative friends, who generally are more supportive of the police just as a matter of default. You know, they they typically will defend the police generally speaking. And you saw a little bit of this in this whole uh, Derek Chauvin, George Floyd situation, where they were blaming not Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd, but actually blaming George Floyd, saying that he was on fentanyl and it was a drug overdose and creating a lot of these other, I guess, deflections that would take the focus off the police officer. To me, that's just bizarre, Uh, just bizarre. And you know, was George Floyd, did he have a drug problem? Yeah, he did. And his girlfriend admitted that on the stand. But the whole time he had, he was under the knee of this officer and he was saying he couldn't breathe. I mean, so it, it, it was clear. I mean, it was obvious that the, the police officer killed George Floyd. But it's just amazing that there are people that will create these false narratives um, to take away from actually justice being served and do it in a way where it's almost like they will they just will automatically defend the police. And like I get it, I understand why the police are really important in our society. I mean, frankly, we can't have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness if we don't have a government agency that defends us when people's rights are violated. So the police play clearly a, a, a critical role in our society to to take care of bad people and to, you know, to go after those that commit assault or murder or rape or theft or fraud. Clearly, the police have a role to play in those cases. 
it's just amazing that you know when and when there are cases where the police go beyond the scope of that and the police are the ones that are actually the ones committing the assault that they are the ones um, that often will get a pass from the system. But a lot of that's sort of built into the way the police, you know, function in our society and some of the the immunities that they have as a result of this. Uh, comment here on the live stream. Why is Maxine Waters not going to be punished for her comments? Now, what did she say? She was basically calling for violence in the streets, wasn't she? Uh, I can't remember the exact quote, and I, I'm assuming it was if Chauvin was found innocent. Again, I don't know the details on this. I've heard other people get upset with politicians in D.C. for speaking out on these issues. You know, I'm of the opinion that they have free speech, too. Right. Um, We all should have the right to say what we want, say what we believe. I mean, that's why I have this podcast. I'm here sharing my own thoughts and opinions. Um, And politicians in D.C. have every right to do that. Now, did Maxine's Maxine Waters words initiate violence? Did was that the trigger that that or a catalyst that caused a spree of property crime and a spree of murder and mayhem on the streets? I don't think it is. So I don't think Maxine Waters should be held accountable for that. You know, the First Amendment is one where we should be able to say what we want. Now, we should be held accountable for our words. If our words cause harm of others, cause material harm or initiate or a catalyst for violence, then yeah, we should be held accountable. William Keller goes on to say, my nephew's friend who was unarmed and shot and killed by a cop, it was a passing story on the news and never mentioned again. Yeah, so there are a lot of cases like this where the police will, um, and again, I'm not saying all police are bad, but there are definitely some bad apples, maybe some bad training, maybe it's the culture where the police will be very quick to be violent, uh, often very aggressive. They take the offensive position and then people are harmed or killed in the, as a result of this. And then the police are really never held to account. But that's what's so interesting about this Derek Chauvin case is that we finally found a you know, well, not finally, but it's a rare example of where the police are held accountable. And I think that's a good idea. Um, but again, I, like I said, the police are necessary in society to – you know, going back to the Declaration of Independence, we all have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it's the role of government to secure those rights. That means that we need police and we need a court system and a way to handle those people that violate our rights. Um, but there is a line that the police really should not go, should not cross, because when they begin to violate the rights of innocent people, or use excessive force to violate the rights of even guilty parties or or so-called criminals. You know, they're not really guilty yet because they haven't gone to a court of law, like in the case of George Floyd. I mean, in the case of George Floyd, I mean, the, the role of the police officer should just be to detain him. Now, what did he do? Uh, again, I don't have all the detail on this, but my understanding is he tried to pass a counterfeit bill. And um, and then the situation escalated and then suddenly, you know, he's under the knee of the cop. Now, granted, I know there's a lot more of the story, but still the police officer, what they should have done is handcuffed him and put it in a police car and taken him back to the, the station and, and arrested him for trying to commit fraud by passing a, a counterfeit bill. Now, never mind the fact that I think that the shop owner 
said it was no big deal. Don't worry about it because he he caught it before it became a problem. Um, but still, the police officers need to understand their role. They're they're not the judge and jury. They're just held to find the criminals and bring them in so they can be held to account. The police officer doesn't act as the police, the judge and the jury all in one swoop. Um, William Keller saying, I'm not against the police, just the cops who killed them. And I, William, I'm with you 100 percent. So the police, generally speaking, um, are not a problem in general. There are bad apples. There are bad policies. There are maybe some cultural issues with the way the police are trained that are, are, are that are issues. And that's why I think in this podcast, I really want to talk about how we should really go forward, maybe rethinking or reimagining the way we do policing in America. Um, Because it seems that as time has gone on, the police have gained more and more power. We've seen them become militarized. We've seen the war on drugs, a lot of these other issues that have empowered the police to become more and more aggressive, more and more intrusive, and have resulted in more and more violations of people's rights. Um, you know, long gone are the days of, uh, you know, Andy Griffith and, and Barney Fife, you know, just kind of walking the neighborhood and just making sure things are good. Um, now, granted, that's a crazy fictional example from a long time ago from a TV show. But the point is, is that the police in a lot of cases are more offensive than defensive in some cases. And that's where we get into trouble. And I think that's where we have problems. So I want to introduce a series of some ideas that I think would be very helpful for us as we reimagine how the police force should perhaps be reformed. Um, William William Keller says, uh, Tony Timpa died in almost the exact way as George Floyd, but he was white. A bad cop is a bad cop. So, William, I assume Tony Timpa, was that your nephew's friend? Um, Yeah, again, race gets involved with this too, right? So when a white cop kills a black person, you know, lately, like in the last five to 10 years, it's become a a bigger issue, right, in, in the media. But sometimes white people are killed by the cops and it's really meant, barely mentioned in the news. And frankly, there's a lot of cases where black people are killed by the cops and it's not really mentioned either. So the stories that make the news are very selective. Um, you know, the, the cases where I think there's more hysteria, more rage, the the whole notion of if it bleeds, it leads. The the media are going to promote those stories. They're going to pick and choose the ones that are going to generate ratings. And a lot of times it breaks down by racial lines. And I know people get upset about that. Um, but I don't know. I think back in my lifetime, I'm thinking about cases of police and race. Probably the first big example I can think of for me was Rodney King. And then, of course, O.J. Simpson. Um, but then really in the last five years or so. I mean, we could talk about Derek. We could talk about George Floyd. We could talk about Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and so many other examples. I mean, it's amazing. So let's talk about one potential issue of reform for the police. And and that's this topic of qualified immunity. And this is something I've only really have been learning about maybe in the last few months, honestly. Um, I didn't know this was a thing, but it makes sense it's a thing. And and essentially what it means is that government officials, in, in this case police officers, cannot be held to account. Like they can't be sued in court for harming other people on the streets. They can't be um, 
they can't be held accountable when they are the ones that are harming others. And and so this is what they call qualified immunity and gives the police and other government officials immunity from being held to account. And part of the reason is, is that they want to not they, they, they want to allow police officers to pursue their cases, to not have to be gun shy, for lack of a better term, and going after criminals because if they're afraid that any action they take could result in them being sued or being put in jail, then it's going to limit the power of the police. So if you're a big law and order type, you probably aren't a fan. You probably are a fan of qualified immunity. You want the police to have more power to track down criminals. But in a lot of cases, qualified immunity is what shields the police from having being held to account. Um, so they essentially can't be sued for their jobs. And a lot of times this goes to police unions and the unions are always fighting on behalf of their officers to protect them and get them higher pay, which is what you'd expect unions to do. But we're now starting to see the tide turn a little bit on qualified immunity. My understanding is, is that in the state of New Mexico, they've gotten rid of it or at least gotten rid of part of it. Other states and other communities are discussing it. We had an interesting conversation, if you want to go back to a previous podcast, with Pete Murray, who lives here in my hometown of Poway and is a, uh, a deputy attorney general and a former um, associate district attorney here in San Diego County. Um, and he had some really interesting thoughts on qualified immunity and with police unions. And I learned a lot from that. But I think if pol- if qualified immunity is eliminated or at least diminished, I think we're going to see more cases where police officers will be held to account when there is a death of an innocent person, like in William Keller's case, when his nephew's friends, who was unarmed, was shot and killed by a cop. When those kinds of cases actually happen, then the police will be held accountable. And then I think it's going to make the police think twice about being overly aggressive and think twice about really pursuing the notion of protecting and serving rather than being an aggressive offensive force. Um, A couple of other comments here on the live stream. Mike Devine said, who killed Ashley Babbitt? Um, Again, I I don't know the answer to that, Mike. Um, I know Ashley Babbitt, correct me if I'm wrong, was she one of the protesters that was on the January 6th Capital insurrection. Wasn't she from, am I getting my people right? I might be confused here, but wasn't she from Ocean Beach here in San Diego County? I know she died. And was she killed by a police officer or was she killed? Again, I don't know the details. By all means, please chime in. Um, oh, William Keller says Tony Timpa was not his friend. His friend's name was Aaron. So Aaron was the friend of your nephew, William. I guess Tony Timpa was someone else in the news. I, I'm not familiar with the Tony Timpa story. Um, Ashley Bannett was. Okay, there's Ashley Babbitt and Ashley Bannett. Are we talking about different people there, Mike? I don't know. Uh, William Keller says, most people don't know if you are confronted by the police, you can demand a watch commander who has to show up just saying it might diffuse some of these bad cop situations. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that so many times, at least in these cases that we're seeing in the media, which are only a fraction of, of all the cases, right? I mean, there's 
police making arrests, you know, all the time. Um, and we're going to break down some of the crime stats here in a minute. And there's about 10 million arrests a year. So many of these have escalate to, to the point that they become out of control and then bad things happen. I wish that the police officers could find ways to diffuse the situation, um, diffuse it in a peaceful way. Um, so then calmer minds can prevail. And maybe in a lot of cases, arrests don't necessarily need to occur. That sometimes, you know, you can kind of brush it off and let people go about their business um, because, yeah, sometimes things get out of control. Sometimes things get out of control and still people are not yet harmed yet. But then the police will escalate the situation and then people get harmed. Um, So, yeah, hopefully cooler minds can prevail. And William, to your point, if you are arrested, can you bring in a watch commander, you know, like another person? That can, you know, basically allows a little time to elapse, people's minds to calm. Maybe a third party comes in or a so-called third party because he's still a police officer. Um, But, yeah, that could help diffuse the situation. Yeah, Mike Devine says, yeah, Ashley uh, Babbitt or Bannett was shot in the police Capitol protest. Yeah, the Capitol protest. And I think she was shot by a cop, if I recall. So, you know, there are examples. I mean, this cuts both ways, left wing, right wing. where police officers, um, police officers in some cases will cross the line. So one example of potential police reform, ending qualified immunity. I think that's something that should be expanded upon because then in cases where innocent people are harmed or killed by the police, then that police officer can be held to account more easily in a court of law. Number two um, reform possibility is the idea of Ending civil asset forfeiture. Now, I don't know if you know what this is. This is a case where if a police officer, there's been lots of examples of this, where a police officer may pull someone over for any traffic citation. And then they're investigating and asking the driver what they're doing, where they're going, and do you have anything in your car? And they might see a bag and they open up the bag. And there's a case, I remember there's one I read in the news, a guy had $8,000 on hand in cash in a bag in his back seat. And the cops immediately think this must be a drug deal and they seize the money. They steal the money. It's civil asset forfeiture. The person is essentially guilty until proven innocent, um, which is the opposite. They should be innocent until proven guilty. Well, in this example I'm sharing with you, which is a story that I read, is a guy who was like legitimately going to go buy a car. You know, he had gotten his cash organized. He was going to pay cash for a used car. And, you know, he had the cash on him, but the police seized it. And then it took great effort for this guy to get his own money back, even though he wasn't doing a drug deal. Um, And there's all kinds of other examples of this where people, you know, have been, let's say, busted for drugs um, in their home and then the house gets seized or other assets are taken away from people before they're even found guilty in a court of law. And it's not necessarily that it's evidence of anything. I mean, these are things that people rely on, you know, to to manage their own life. Um, So civil asset forfeiture, in a lot of cases, some police departments use that. They accumulate all these assets and then they sell them. And that's a way that the the police department actually generates more revenue, which helps pay more salaries for the police department. So that's an interesting case. 
that's a, another one that's, I think, worthy of readdressing is civil asset forfeiture and ideally ending it. Um, also on the live stream uh, from Laurel Web Design, is it just me or did I witness an assault on due process? Um, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the um, Derek Chauvin trial? I'm not sure what you're referring to, Lauer Web Design. Um, Mike Devine on the live stream says civil asset uh, forfeitures should be criminal. Also, all public servants should have qualified immunity removed. Okay, so Mike, you and I are in agreement there. Um, civil f- asset forfeiture should be criminal because it's theft. <laughs> even if the police are taking it, it's it's theft before a crime is even proven. Um, and and like I said, a lot of times these police departments are incentivized to do civil asset forfeiture because it provides more money that they can use to fund their department. Um, the third idea for police reform or, or criminal justice reform is ending the drug war. Now, I've talked about this on previous podcasts. The war on drugs is – now, it depends on how you look at it. Like a lot of people see war on drugs. They see drugs are bad. We got to get rid of drugs. We don't want our kids having drugs. And OK, I get that. Um but the war on drugs has created a huge set of problems that go beyond the scope of the usage of the drugs themselves. The war on drugs has empowered the police to be more aggressive. That's why they do the civil asset forfeiture of the example I shared, where a guy had $8,000 of cash removed from his backseat of his car because it's assumed that it's a drug deal. And so there are a lot of cases where even in you know, these checkpoints that we have that are meant to capture drunk drivers, but they're also looking for drugs. They're looking for other ways to violate people's rights when the people driving may be perfectly sober, may not be violating the law at all. But then suddenly, you know, if they happen to have like, you know, some marijuana on them or some other drug and they're, and they're not they're not inebriated, they're they're totally sober. That could be just enough for them to get arrested. Um, Maybe their car gets impounded. Um, And there's all kinds of other cases like this where the police are always hunting for drugs. I mean, a great example is the Breonna Taylor case that happened, gosh, what was that, about a year ago or so, where she was killed by the police. Breonna Taylor, you know, she was a black young woman and she was living in an apartment. And God, I remember, what, what city was that in? Was it I can't remember the city it was in. I think it was somewhere in the Midwest of America. And the police were looking for drugs. And apparently her ex-boyfriend was a drug dealer. And her ex-boyfriend at one time had some drugs in that apartment. The police got a warrant and to, to enter the property to search for drugs. But they didn't do it during the day. They did it in the middle of the night. And they busted down the door. And there's a little bit of question if it was a no-knock warrant or if there was a knock required. But the police came in, busted down the door, and she had broken up with that boyfriend. That boyfriend wasn't in her apartment. There were no drugs in her apartment. But yet the police busted in. um, And, you know, imagine you're asleep and suddenly someone blows down your door and there's all of a sudden cops and guns in your apartment well, she happened to have a new boyfriend who was in bed with her and he had a gun on him. And, you know, he's thinking, oh, my God, I got to defend my girlfriend. And the, the minute the cops saw that the other guy had a gun, the police started shooting and they killed Breonna Taylor, who was completely innocent. 
And meanwhile, which was interesting, is the cops had already apprehended the guy, the drug dealer, her ex-boyfriend, prior to doing the raid on Breonna Taylor's place. So there are lots of cases like this where the drug war has resulted in violations of people's rights, innocent people that are just you know, using a drug, it's a victimless crime. They're just using a drug or maybe they're buying or selling, but no one's hurt. And yet the police are empowered to apprehend these people. And that power has resulted in innocent people that are not using drugs at all, that are seeing their rights violated. They're being um, subject to search and seizure. And then what's happening is, is that now we've got this mass incarceration state with so many people that are in prison for nonviolent crimes. So the war on drugs is another example where it has greatly empowered the police to be more aggressive, more offensive, more intrusive, and has led them to go into certain neighborhoods where there's more drug activity, which oftentimes ends up being... Well, actually, you could say it's maybe disproportionately policed, but in many cases, they're going into minority neighborhoods, poorer neighborhoods, and there's havoc that's wreaked as a result. And a lot of times, innocent people or nonviolent people are being locked up and put in jail. So the war on drugs, I think, is something that needs to be very seriously reexamined. Ending the war on drugs doesn't mean that we think drugs should be widely used in America. It's typically the fact that the fact that drugs are illegal, the the fact that drugs are prohibited creates a lot of this underground um, sort of, you know, gang black market, the way they're distributed, very similar to what happened in the 1920s when alcohol was prohibited. And we saw gangs there, you know, um, running moonshine. It's the same thing, you know. So the fact that drugs have been made illegal creates an underground movement of this product that creates more violence and then more police activity, and it creates more innocent loss of life and then a greater burden on the prison system. And we learned the lesson in the 20s. And it was eventually, what, 1933 that prohibition was repealed. I think it was 33. Uh, prohibition was repealed. And then guess what? Gun violence went down. <laughs> people, a lot less lives were harmed. And yeah, did some people die as a result of uh, overconsumption of alcohol or drunk driving? Yeah, that, that occurred. But it was far less than the the damage and the violence that that resulted from keeping alcohol illegal in the first place because of all the the gang activity to to distribute it. So the war on drugs, I think, is something that needs to be, in my opinion, completely blown up. And that would be a huge game changer on the way the police act. Um, Lauer Web Design says, so So then what about implied consent? Okay. <laughs> you know, you're getting into some legal uh, terms here that are kind of beyond me. They're a little bit over my head. So explain implied consent. I, I think I know what you mean, uh, Lauer Web Design, but be a little bit clearer for me. Um, another one is just ending victimless crimes in general, right? Um, there are so many crimes that our people are getting ticketed or arrested or put in jail when no one is hurt. You know, you know, maybe the person is harming themselves, but there's no innocent victim that is being harmed as a result. So 
like like the example one of the examples was drug use. Like, you know, someone is smoking marijuana and they're just chilling on their couch, you know, who's hurt by that? Or even for more serious drugs, if someone is using a drugs in, in their home and they're not hurting anyone, that's no reason for someone to go to jail. Um, that's a victimless crime. But there are other kinds like crimes where two consenting adults do something and no one else is harmed. I think assisted suicide is a good example of that, where – you know, an elderly person for whatever reason wants to end their life. They get the assistance of a of a uh, doctor to help them. Who was that? Dr. Kevorkian, if I remember, was the big story. But this is something between two consenting people, but yet it's a crime. Um, and it really shouldn't be. Uh, other examples are gambling. I mean, how many uh, – there's been recent arrests here in San Diego County where people had set up gambling operations in their house where they had slot machines and poker tables. And, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, if people want to get together and gamble, I mean, that's, not, that's something that should be a crime. And, frankly, the, the, by keeping it illegal, that's when you invite more of that gangster um, connection to it. Um, but if you make it just above board and legal, then it's more likely to be safe, more likely to be protected, less likely to have cases of theft or violence if it's made legal. So gambling is another victimless crime, yet people are arrested for it when they are gambling illegally. And then prostitution is another good example um, where in a lot, not in all cases, I mean, th- there are cases where um, there's sex trafficking and, you know, people are being held against their will. But there's other cases where the prostitutes are completely consenting adults. And that's that shouldn't be a crime either. But there's a lot of those cases. And then other ones like, in, you know, I'm going to roll the clock back, but it used to be that homosexual sex was a crime and people were locked up for that. Um, flag burning is another crazy one that people are arrested for. Um, who's harmed when a flag is burned, especially if it's your own flag, your own property? Flag burning should never be a crime. But, you know, some people still, you know, believe that they that people should be arrested uh, for that. But there's a whole slew of what I'll call um, victimless crimes. And what's interesting is, is that I got this um, – these numbers and where did I do? Did I print it out? I think I did. Hang on with me. Ah, I must not have captured that document when I printed out my notes here. But it was interesting is that, um, and I'll read this quote from an article. And it says, among the most common causes for you know arrest in general, because there have been like 10 million arrests in America in 2019, are low-level offenses like disorderly conduct and a broad, largely unexplained category the FBI refers to as all other offenses. This, this category of all other offenses is like 33% of arrests. And when you see like from the Department of Justice, all of the categories of arrests, all the big ones are in there. Murder, assault, rape, um, driving under the influence, um, we can go down the list. All the big ones, you know, burglary, uh, murder, um, you know, all of those are listed. And then then you see a lot of these other, you know, so-called victimless crimes that are listed there. And then there's this one called all other cases. 
So there's so many examples of this. And these all their cases can include a variety of non-traffic offenses, violations for local ordinances or civil violations for failing to pay fines, um, drug violations, and all these others account for nearly 80% of arrests. Um, And the violent offenses make up only about 5% of the arrests. So there's a whole slew of what we'll call victimless crimes. Um, And I I heard an interesting stat that was um, someone shared, and it was a good idea for police reform, is what if we eliminated all of these victimless crimes and just said it's victimless crimes are no longer crimes and we don't need police pursuing victimless crimes. And if, if we got rid of victimless crimes, Breonna Taylor would still be alive. Eric Garner would still be alive. Um, if we got rid of victimless crimes, well, then we might only need like half, you know, roughly speaking, half the police officers. And, and with those police officers, we could pay them a lot more and then get higher quality people, you know, becoming police officers. Imagine that. Imagine having just the police that was going after like the, the hardcore crime of murder, theft, burglary, rape, assault, fraud. And we had less cops rather than cops, you know, basically chasing down people for silly reasons. There was a a video I saw recently and it was these, you know, these young kids that were on bicycles and riding in the street and the cops came after them and the cops seized their bicycles because they weren't licensed. They weren't officially licensed by the city. You're thinking this is ridiculous, and no one was hurt. It wasn't like anyone got hurt by these bicyclists on the on the road. There were they didn't cause any accidents. You know, they you could say maybe they deserved a ticket if they ran a stop sign or did something you know against the the traffic laws. But they were people. I mean, these cops were rounding up these young kids who, by the way, were people of color, and um, and giving them uh, harassing them, took some of them away in police cars and seized their bicycles because they weren't licensed by the local government. So some of it is just crazy. Wow, a lot more flying here on the live stream. Um, Lauer Web Design here, I think trying to expand on implied consent. Sorry, it's a combination of administrative law, like example in Pennsylvania. If you have a driver's license, you are obligated to submit to blood tests, breath tests if requested. If you deny it, guilty or not, you are subject to administrative punishment, typically six months or one year loss of license. Yeah, that's tricky. You know, a driver's license is a form of a contract, I think. So there are certain things that they can get you for. But yeah, if you refuse a, a breathalyzer, well, if there's evidence that you are driving recklessly on the road, that's that in and of itself should be reason that the police should be able to detain you. If you're drunk driving and you're swerving, um, that in and of itself is reason for them to not, not only ticket you, but potentially arrest you. Um, if you are becoming, you are endangering everyone else around you. Um Chris Sohei on the live stream says, won't be a crime if the state can tax it. Yeah. So definitely if uh, taxation and, and, and following the money, right, that usually plays a role in all of this is how can the state make the most money in the deal to really fund the, the salaries for people that are in the criminal justice system to fund the police officers, to prov- to fund prison workers, 
Um, Lauer Web Design goes on to say license suspended. If the driver refuses to submit to testing, the officer will notify the Department of Transportation, who will then impose a 12-month license suspension. Um, if you have airblown canoes registered to float down a river. Um, so at any rate, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting ways that the police go about, in some cases, I think, crossing the line and going too far. Now, there's another case like over-criminalization, where this is another category of potential reform. Over-criminalization, well, it's kind of like those bicycle licenses that I was talking about just a moment ago. But here's a couple of interesting cases. One, a river guide saw a teenager in distress, and so he left his boat and went to save her. He was charged with obstructing government operations for not waiting for the search and rescue team to arrive at the scene. That's nuts, right? So this guy was actually doing the right thing to save a person, and yet he was charged because he didn't give the search and rescue team, the official government search and rescue team, um, the opportunity to get there and do it, do, uh, do the rescue. Another example, and this is re- uh, retired race car driver Bobby Unser. I remember him. God, when I was a kid, Bobby and his brother Al used to race in the Indy 500. Um, He was prosecuted by federal authorities for driving his snowmobile on protected federal land. Unser and his friend got lost in a snowstorm and were desperately seeking shelter or assistance. So this guy is like fighting for his life and he happened to drift into federal land and then he gets arrested. This is a case, again, where the police could defuse the situation, figure out, oh, man, this guy's just looking for shelter. You know, give the dude a break. You know, uh, the cops don't need to be so aggressive. Um, and, and there are lots of other. Here's another one. Members of a Christian outreach group were arrested and prosecuted for feeding the homeless in a Fort Lauderdale park. Local rules restrict uh, food sharing. So. Yeah, there's a lot of over-criminalization in a lot of cases, and I think those are categories for police reform. Ending no-knock warrants. I, th- I talked a little bit about that with Breonna Taylor. If you get a warrant, and warrants are legit, right? If there is probable cause and you've done your investigation and you believe that at someone's place of residence or their car needs to be searched, you go to a judge, you get a warrant. You got to prove that there's a case. There's reasonable suspicion, and you get a judge to approve it. Well, when you show up for the warrant, you can't just bust the person's door down um, and go in and turn their place upside down. I mean, knock. I mean, it's still, you know, it's the, the, the whole notion of a castle doctrine, it's still their property. So, yeah, you can search it, but no knock warrants, again, it, it empowers the police to be too aggressive. And when there is a no-knock warrant, when they're literally busting the door down as they come in, that creates an alert situation and a situation like when Breonna Taylor's boyfriend thought, you know, anyone could be coming in to attack them, didn't know it was the cops, went to reach for the gun. And then suddenly the cops see the guy with the gun in his hand and boom, boom, out go the lights. Um, So ending... No-knock warrants. Ending uh, police militarization is another interesting one. I mean, if you've noticed, there's a lot of cases of local police departments that have been uh, procuring, like, tanks and military-grade weapons from the Department of Defense. Um, And so sometimes when 
there's like a major SWAT operation. It's almost like the army is there, but it's not the army. It's actually the police. That's that's something else, because when people see police militarization, that doesn't feel like the police that are protecting and serving, that they're members of your community that are looking out to help you. It, it frankly erodes public confidence in the police. It it puts them as an offensive operation, a more aggressive operation, that they're about to go out there and start violating the rights of other people. Um, it's a terrible message. I think the police need to be more defensive than offensive. Um, but police militarization is definitely something that escalates the situation. It doesn't diffuse the situation. I think that's an area that needs to be eliminated. Um, mandatory minimums is another good one, where in cases where people are prosecuted for certain crimes, you know, let's, let's say they're busted for selling, I don't know, cocaine, or they're busted for one crime or another, there are built-in laws that the judge has to include a sentence that's of a minimum of, let's say, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the protocol is, the judge has to have a sentence of, a, of that mandatory minimum or more when that person is sentenced. We, we had Pete Murray in here talking about this, um, you know, current a, 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 a um, deputy attorney general here in the state of California, former associate district attorney, and frankly, he was a candidate for judge in the last election. We talked a lot about this because as a judge, judges need to have the ability to make judgment, to look at a case and and then determine what the appropriate sentence is based on the facts as they exist, based on the circumstances, based on a wide range of criteria. But when that judge is given a mandatory minimum, a lot of times people are thrown into jail for dramatically disproportional uh, amounts of time than really the crime itself, especially under the circumstances. So again, we see there more people thrown in jail for longer periods of time, a greater mass incarceration state. Um, America has on a per capita basis, more people in prison than any nation on the planet. Yet we're supposed to be the nation of the, you know, the home of the, the brave and the land of the free. I said that the other way around, right? The land of the free and the home of the brave, right? But yet we put more people in prison on a percentage basis than any nation on the planet. And a lot of it's because of mandatory minimums. And then this also erodes the the confidence that people have in the police because sometimes people can be picked up for what was likely a petty crime or really a small issue. Like three strikes is a great example. You could be busted on a crime, let's say a serious crime the first time you go to jail, okay, serve your sentence, you get out. Second time you do another crime, you go to jail, serve your time, you get out, okay? Right now you're a serial criminal. And let's say the third crime, you do something really small, like you're hungry and you steal a slice of pizza from a restaurant, something that's just really tiny, in the whole scheme of things. But because that's a third strike, you could be put in prison for, depending on your age and the severity of the three the three strikes you're out rule, you could be put in jail for the rest of your life, ultimately for stealing a slice of pizza. That's a mandatory minimum that I think is, is inju- unjust. 
and really doesn't belong in our criminal justice system. A lot of this is driven, I think, by religion. It's this whole eye for an eye. You know, people want to be tough on crime. And I get that. I mean, we do need to be tough on criminals, but sometimes people go too far. And I think this is another category for reform. And then the final one is ending the death penalty. Um, I remember a long time ago, I, I thought the death penalty kind of made sense when I was younger. But then I remember my wife told me this, and it was, I think we were dating at the time. And she said, why is it that we should kill someone to prove that killing someone is bad? <laughs> and that's what the death penalty is. You're, and it's it's the exact opposite of the message we should be sending to, you know, to the society, to culture. And in a lot of ways, the death penalty, I think, is excessive force by government, especially if they get it wrong and they kill someone that turned out didn't commit the crime in the first place. Because we've seen cases like that where DNA evidence comes forward and 20 years later or longer later, they're they're discovered to be innocent. Um, yeah, I think ending the death penalty would be a good idea. Now, I have a friend of mine here in, in town in Poway. He was he thought Derek Chauvin needed to be hung uh, from a rope in the public square. He was all for the death penalty. And I was like, man, that's just too much. Just put him in jail for a very long time. Uh, but I think these are fair um, ways to reform the police, fair ways to reform criminal justice. I think if some of these ideas were put into effect, we would see less problems. Um, we would not see a... Um, a case like George Floyd or a case like Breonna Taylor or Eric Garner or a lot of others, in, in, in including, you know, some in, including um, here in the live stream, uh, William Keller's nephew's friend who was shot and killed by a police officer. A lot of those cases wouldn't happen at all if some of these reform ideas were put into place. So I wanted to put that on the table for you, and I'm really thankful for the conversation here. A couple more comments here on the live stream. William Keller says, what about the innocent people who get robbed because people need money for drugs? Okay, now that's a legitimate crime. If people are robbed, if there's burglary or theft, that's a legit crime. That's a property crime. You know, people breaking into cars, people robbing people's homes. That's the crime. The drug addiction isn't the crime. Now, sure, the drug addiction led to people you know, stealing things. But we got to be clear on this. The problem is the theft. The problem, the the crime, the, the, the usage of the drug itself isn't harming anyone except the person that's taking the drugs. But when they act out and steal from people, that's the legitimate crime. Um, Lauer Web Design says five states um, are all that still have the death penalty on the table, though, right? You know, I don't know how many states still have the death penalty. I know people like to refer to the electric chair as old Sparky. I think some people still kind of get off on that. They think it's cool that the state can kill people, like let them fry. And that whole mentality just feels like it's like medieval, right? It's like from the movie Pulp Fiction. You know, he says, I'm going to get medieval on your ass. You know, it's that it's that mentality. It just seems like we can evolve, you know, as humans. We don't have to resort to this eye for an eye mentality. Um, William Keller says, who's hurt? The kids, they possibly push those drugs on, um, on or the ones when people hurt others for drug money. Well, the drug usage in and of itself is a victimless crime. 
if that leads to people harming others, then yeah, that's a problem. But you know, the same thing happened with anything. I mean, we could say alcohol, um, pe- people pushing alcohol. But you know what? Alcohol is legal, and as a result, you don't have like kids trying to sell alcohol at the, uh, in schools, or if you did, it's to a far lesser degree. Because if people want to get alcohol, there are other ways to get it, and the ways they can get it are much more safe. That's why you see some people that OD on fentanyl because fentanyl is is being um, well. Fentanyl is legitimately a drug that people need in certain circumstances, but when it's being distributed in the black market, sometimes people can get it, and it's not you know being properly managed. The people that are putting you know cutting the drug and and filtering in the fentanyl are doing it without being properly educated on how to do it correctly and then people end up overdosing mostly because the drug is distributed on the black market so if drugs were more legalized it would be safer and it would be you know we still have people using drugs i mean i'm not saying we should all be using drugs but i'm saying the end result would be net better than we would have by keeping them all illegal. Um, Lauer Web Design says, I agree with most of what you're saying. Our criminal justice system definitely needs to be changed. I've thought about this for a long time and come to a similar conclusion. Probation, parole is a problem too. Yeah. Well, right on, uh, Lauer Web Design. Thanks. Um, glad we are able to have some agreement. Okay. Now, we're at the 53-minute mark. I really want to get into some local discussion here in San Diego County, specifically with the city of San Diego and in the city of Poway. Um, So uh, I'm going to go into this. I'm not going to make this a monster podcast episode, but I want to talk about some of these issues. But before we do, um, I really encourage the conversation on social media. You can reach out to me. And I created a new domain. It's called connectwithjohnny.com. So if you go to connectwithjohnny.com, All of my social media platforms are listed there. You can click on our Facebook page, our John Riley Project Insiders Group Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, um, and all the social, all the uh, podcast platforms where we're distributing. And you can even get on my mailing list. So go to connectwithjohnny.com and like, follow, and share. And let's continue the discussion in social media. Okay. Um, Oh, here's another comment here on the live stream from Lauer Web Design. In regards to recidivism, they get locked up for five years for failing a drug test, marijuana, alcohol, etc. Yeah. So recidivism, I guess, is, you know, the possibility of going back into prison after you've been released. But, you know, if they're caught for failing a drug test, that's no reason for them to go into prison. I mean, you can maybe make a case that they need to go into a clinic to overcome their addiction, And frankly, marijuana and alcohol in your system, I mean, most people, not most people, but so many people in America had a, I had a beer last night at the Padre game. So I probably have alcohol in my system now, but I don't, you know, getting people on these drug tests and throwing them in jail, is just ridiculous. Um, So, okay, let's move on. All right. Um, We're going to get now into the San Diego City budget. And this is being proposed by Mayor Todd Gloria. And there's some really interesting comments that I picked up from the article that I read at pomeradonews.com. And pomeradonews.com is the website for the publisher of our local paper here in Poway, the Poway Chieftain. 
They also produce the Rancho Bernardo News Journal. So we're located here in San Diego County, kind of up the 15. They call it North County Inland. So I always like to go get my local news there here in Poway and Rancho Bernardo. But, you know, Rancho Bernardo is in San Diego, and they had a great article here about uh, Todd Gloria and the budget. And it's interesting is the city of San Diego has a $4.6 billion budget. That's enormous. Now, I think Poway as a city is only about $100 million, if I recall. And the Poway Unified School District has a four, roughly speaking, a $400 million budget. Um, the San Diego City uh, has a $4.6 billion budget. And the big kerfuffle in this whole thing is that he's going to reduce library hours and increase police spending. So you can imagine the reaction in the community from this. And Rancho Bernardo Library is one of the ones that would be affected. Like that library is probably only about two, maybe two and a half miles from my house. Um, they are currently open seven days a week. But if this proposed budget is approved, they're going to lose out on Sunday and Monday. And people are really upset about this, as you can imagine. And Gloria's got some other um, examples in his budget. And we're going to go through some of these with um, small business loans and his so-called sexy streets, which we'll break down in a minute, uh, reducing police overtime and et cetera. But what's interesting is they had a budget deficit last year in the city of San Diego, $124 million. And that's because of COVID, right? And that makes sense. They probably had increased expenses and lower revenue because of COVID. So COVID, frankly, is just wreaking havoc with so many categories in society and frankly, in people's lives. Definitely affecting my family for sure, particularly my children. Um, just no, they don't have COVID, but it's just affecting their jobs, their college and everything else. It's just been so disruptive. Um, but what is also interesting in this article is that Joe Biden in his American Rescue Plan, which was put into law, the city of San Diego is going to get $306 million from the federal government. That's a ton. Um, that's like almost 10% of their budget. So that's a big deal. But here are some of the things that Todd Gloria had in his budget I think were worth commenting on. The first one is he's going to have a 13.4% increase over last year's budget um, in general. But much of that increase, you know, $400 uh, million of the $537 million increase is going to the Pure Water Project. And you might be thinking, what in the hell is Pure Water Project? We, we had a great conversation with this with C Poway City Councilman John Mullen, gosh, back in 2018 when he was running for reelection, because he also serves on the board for the Pure Water Project. And this is, I know this is a term they don't like, but is what it is. It's toilet to tap. This is where they are recycling water and they are able to recycle the water that comes off of our sinks and our toilets and, and our showers and they can run it through a filtration system that makes it cleaner than the water we're getting right now out of the tap. And I know that sounds shocking, but that the technology makes it cleaner than what we're getting from the tap now. This is a remarkable um, technology. And frankly, I think I've always said technology saves the day in a lot of these cases. There's new reports saying how we're entering a new level of drought in California. Frankly, the Western United States, 
and, and we can go down the path of climate change and yada, yada. But the fact is, is that, yeah, there's going to be less water. We've got the desalinization plant in Carlsbad. I think that's a great innovation. But I think this pure water project, investing more in it. To me, if you're going to invest in infrastructure, this is a great one to invest in. Now, hopefully they'll set it up where the city can recoup the, those dollars by you know, maybe having a little bit of a rate increase to pay for this infrastructure investment. But I think that's a good move. Now, he's talking about also, oh, Lauer Web Design says, turning gray water into potable water. Right. So w- help me out. What's gray water? What's the official definition of gray water? A potable water, I think, is drinking water, right? Uh, potable water is water we can use in our shower, in our... Um, washing machine, and I think it's the water that comes out of the tap. Uh, gray water, can I, is that water that just goes through the drain, but it's not necessarily sewage water? Oh, toilet water. Gray water is toilet water. Yeah, exactly. So the pure, um, the pure water project is toilet to tap. And again, that just sounds nuts, right? But it, the result is it's cleaner than what we're getting out of the faucet. Now, I just think that's so cool. Um, now, he's also talking about reducing the city library's hours and just having it Tuesday through Saturday, and he thinks that's going to save $6.9 million. And that's what the staff member said. Now, one of the other council members from, from the city of San Diego, Vivian Moreno, she just said, that's just unacceptable. And you know, she represents districts in District 8, which is like San Ysidro and Barrio Logan and Logan Heights and you know, a lot more uh, low income, more minority neighborhoods. And, you know, they, they're talking about the digital divide, you know, where poor people don't have access to computers and people need the library so they can use the computer so they can take advantage of all the opportunity that's available on the Internet and cutting that back. And I, I get her point. But a couple of comments on this. The, the county of Riverside has done something very, very innovative that I don't think gets enough attention. They have privatized the management of their libraries. So normally, like here in in the city of San Diego, like the Rancho Bernardo Library, that is run by the city of San Diego. It is staffed by city of San Diego employees. And they're the ones that decide on the hours and the ones that make all the rules for the library. And if they're funded enough, they can be open for seven days. Now, here in Poway, we have a library as well. I think it's the county that provides the Poway Library. But the same thing, it's run by county people um, and they're government employees. Well, in the county of Riverside, they had libraries there that they privatized the management of them. So uh, they contracted out with a company, a corporation, and that corporation managed the library. The library itself was still a government asset. You know, the building, the books, everything in there was still owned by the government. But the people that ran it were working for a private company. And when the county of Riverside did that, they were able to expand hours, have the libraries open more days and more hours in the day. They were also able to have more books available, more technology available, because the private company was looking for a way to be cost efficient. They were looking for ways to service customers and attract people into the libraries. They had more of a customer service mentality than a government worker. They also 
weren't paying them as much, right? I mean, government employees oftentimes are paid extraordinarily well. It used to be the government employees made less money than their equivalent in the private sector, but because they had great benefits and a job that was very secure, it was almost impossible to fire, be fired, they usually had less pay as a result. Well, now it's been flipped the other way around. A lot of cases, government workers make more money than the equivalent person in the private sector. So when this was outsourced to a private company, they were able to bring in employees at a lower cost. But what it enabled, the end result is, is that the people in the county of Riverside benefited. There were more days open, the libraries. Their hours of being open were expanded. And there were more books, more resources available to the people. But the government officials don't think that way. A lot of times because of, you know, relationships with unions, which we're going to get into in a minute here. Um, but the, the other part of this is, is I, I always thought that the notion of libraries is something that we, we need to rethink in the Internet age. Um, you know, a, like Netflix is a remarkable model, right? Netflix, where we got a click of a button, we can downstream movies, right? Right to us at an instant. And a lot of times, that's how people are reading books. They're reading books online, downloading them to their Kindle or mobile device. But remember Netflix before it was streaming? Remember Netflix back in the day where you would get a CD, or not a CD, a DVD, it was mailed to you. And then you would use it, and then you put it back in the envelope, and you put it back in the mail, and it went back to them. Back then, Netflix used to have this big warehouse, or lots of warehouses, managing all these DVDs. I've often wondered if the the book operation of a library could be better managed that way. It could be more efficient, where if it's just about checking books in and out, they could have a centralized warehouse and make it easy for people to access these books. I mean, they might have to wait, you know, a, a day to get it, but it could streamline the operation of the library. Now, libraries now are a lot more than just a place to get books. Libraries are now community um, centers. They're places like, you know, where people can access the Internet. Um, there's a lot of child care services or really not child care services, but um, services for children that are in libraries. I mean, the library has become more than just a place to get books. Um, I often wondered why it has to be that way. I've often wondered, now granted, libraries are not a huge portion of the government budget, but I always thought this is something that it's like an old model from a long time ago that we cling to because libraries feel good and sound good. But the usage of the library is still a relatively small percentage of the population. And there's so many more efficient ways that it can be done. Imagine if the libraries were made smaller into smaller facilities. They still provided access for people to use the Internet, like what Vivian Moreno, city councilman for San Diego, is con concerned about. And those could be open not only seven days a week, but maybe even 24 hours a day. But they wouldn't necessarily need this huge building to hold all the books. <laughs> the books could be stored in a warehouse and those could be manage just like Netflix used to when we had DVDs. I think there are, there are new ways we can reimagine libraries. Now, what's happening is, is that um, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria is going to cut, the, is proposing to cut the hours. So this is something that's getting people riled up. Um, 
Lauer Web Design on the live stream says, many campuses will be digital eventually. They scan paperback and upload to PDF, including scholarly articles and text. Yeah. I mean, all this is going digital. Um, now, Grant, I know people have a love affair with the physical book and the tactileness and being able to thumb through the pages. But, um, yeah, a lot of that's going digital. And, frankly, when books are digital, um, there's less re- reason to have requiring so much space in a library to hold all these old books. So technology is changing, and I think it's creating opportunities to do things better more cost-efficient, but also provide greater services to the community. I always think libraries is a category that can be revolutionized to be so much better. Um, But people have a hard time with it because libraries are very sacred to a lot of people, um, and they don't want them to really be significantly changed or altered. Um, They want them maybe to be enhanced more but definitely not to be reimagined. I think this is a topic that I think is worthy of discussion. Okay, what else is in his uh, proposed budget? And we're rolling here on the podcast. We're at an hour and eight minutes. Um, He's proposing a $19 million increase to the San Diego Police Department's budget. And the the city has increased the San Diego uh, PD's budget for the last 10 years, an increase of more than $200 million since 2011. Now, this is interesting on a couple of levels because, you know, with all of this criminal justice issues going on, you hear defund the police all the time, right? They want less money going to the police, especially our friends on the left, our more progressive friends. They want that money reallocated to social services and a lot of other cases, which is conceptually similar to what I'm talking about, decriminalizing a lot of these things that the police have to resolve, like domestic disputes, right? A lot of times the police get thrown into those situations where there might be better, more capable, more professional people that can handle some of those cases. But there's a movement essentially to defund the police. And Mayor Todd Gloria, who is a Democrat, wants to increase funding for the police. So you're thinking, what's going on here? You know, And then you look a little deeper and sure enough, Todd Gloria was endorsed for mayor by the San Diego City Police Department Union, which is that's how these union things go. And I've talked about this before, particularly with our school district here in Poway. There's a quid pro quo relationship between elected officials and the government employee unions where that that endorsement, like Todd Gloria getting that endorsement of the San Diego police officers is a huge endorsement because there's a lot of people that just support the police, are rule, you know, law and order, rule of law people. And if the police support this candidate, then he must be a good candidate. The endorsement of the police department is the equivalent of getting the endorsement of the teachers union if you're running for school district, for school board. It's a huge endorsement. But what ends up happening is when that union helps get their candidate elected, what does that candidate feel obliged to do? They feel obliged to return the favor, spending $19 million more with the San Diego City Police Department. Where is the vast majority of that money going to go? It's going to go in higher wages for the police department, for the police officers. Um, So that's how the game is played, right? Um, 
And are they going to necessarily have more cops on the street? Are they going to reform the police to be more effective at going after legitimate cases of violent crime? Or are they just empowering the same officers to go about pursuing essentially BS crimes, victimless crimes? You know, so we're kind of throwing money at a problem where you're not really reforming the police, what the police should be doing in the first place. So like I said, you you could eliminate all these victimless crimes and frankly reduce the amount of necessary arrests by half or more. And imagine if you have less if you have less than half the or more than half the arrests reduced, you would need a lot less cops. And then what you could do is with the current budget for police, you could increase the pay of those cops, but there would be a lot less of them. And now the police would be actually getting paid more. You get a higher quality of an employee, a higher character of an individual, generally speaking. And they would be pursuing the legit crimes. I wish they would think that way. But instead, you know, the police officers endorse Gloria. So he's going to return the favor and increase their budget by $19 million, even though we're seeing defund the police nationwide as a big movement. Um William Keller on the live stream saying, I disagree with you on a lot of your points, but that's all right. Yeah, right on, William. Yeah, I have my opinions and you have your opinions. And part of this uh, podcast is meant to be kind of a conversation. It's a public forum where we share and discuss issues without beating each other over the head and calling each other names. And if you have a different opinion, that's cool. I'd like to hear it. I'm sharing mine, uh, but I'd love to hear yours. Um, You go on to say, William says, um, I I con- concentrate more on God's law than man's law. It's between legality and morality. I choose morality. Well, there you go. Yeah, a lot of times legality and morality are not aligned, right? Sometimes things that are immoral are legal. And frankly, there are sometimes things people do that are moral that are illegal. And Honestly, different people have different morality. Morality is not absolute. I mean, what is morality? Morality is just sort of a code of how you live your life. It's what you determine to be right or wrong. It's like you're essentially your framework of how you see the world and how you make choices and what you perceive to be virtuous or, or, or divisive or a vice. Um, but we don't. We all don't share the same morality, with the fullest respect and. And even, you know, Christian uh, Christianity has a morality. Other religions have their own versions of morality, which are oftentimes very similar to Christianity. But frankly, atheists have morality too. And there's a lot of morality that is disconnected from religion at, in, the, in the first place. There's a lot of right and wrong that don't have any religious influence at all. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I like to live my life according to my own moral code. And a lot of my moral moral code is about protecting people's inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We should be free to live our lives as we see fit, as long as we don't harm people in the, in the process of doing it. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it gets tricky, right? With God's law and legality, a lot of people want God's law to be the legal law, but then we get separation of church and state becomes an issue. But then a lot of times God's law, like some of the some of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill. Well, that's legit. I mean, that should be in the legal code, right? Um, you shouldn't murder. 
Um, but yeah, it's an interesting topic, legality versus morality. Uh, William Keller says, last week I was in Poway. It was 92 degrees. I hope you're in a cool room. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm in my, my podcast studio, which is my converted living room. And it's right now kind of cloudy and a little windy. I'm guessing it's around 60 degrees outside. Uh, so it's definitely a cool day. But it was warm last week for sure. Uh, Lauer Web Design says, I get your point. Police are typically underpaid. I don't know about where you are, um, where I am. Well, physically, I'm in the city of Poway, California in San Diego County. Um, Also, trainings are not cheap. Oftentimes, trainings are optional and not paid, and so police don't go due to budgeting. Well, the case of, gosh, what was the, I can't remember the victim's name, but it was in the news very recently where they were pulled over for having expired tags on their car. It turned out that this person was, there was a warrant out for his arrest. The police officer pulled what they thought was the taser, but they actually pulled a gun and he went to tase them, but instead shot the person and killed them on the spot. Um, that was also in the city of Minneapolis where the whole Derek Chauvin, George Floyd thing's going down. Um, that to me is just like completely uh, a case of terrible training where this officer couldn't tell the difference between a gun and a taser. Um, this officer wasn't trained to, you know, have a calm mind in how they went about handling this case. You know, the officer made mistakes, no question. The officer resigned. I think this officer will be held to account as she should. But I think this is this proves that there was a failure in training. There's so many cases where I think if the police officers were trained better, they'd be able to diffuse situations. They'd be able to do things like without needing a gun. I mean, just by using martial arts, they'd be able to subdue some of these uh, uh, suspected criminals rather than having to bring out a gun and having something crazy happen and people get shot and killed. I think training is a huge issue. Um, Dante Wright. Thank you, Lauer Web Design. Yeah, that was the person. Uh, and Kim Potter. Yeah, she was the uh, the officer that, that accidentally killed uh, Dante Wright. Um, definitely not fit for duty. So we agree there. Um, moving on here, uh, a couple of other interesting comments in this San Diego City uh, budget proposed by Todd Gloria. $10 million in nonprofit and small business loans in hard hit industries and owned by people of color. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, so you've got all this money that you're budgeting, but you're only giving it to certain people based on their race? Like, really? <laughs> I, I, haven't we, isn't that what we've been trying to fight for hundreds of years is racial discrimination? And now he wants to have $10 million in nonprofit and small business loans in hard hit industries and owned by people of color. To me, that's just nuts. I mean, that's, that's something that needs to be strongly pushed back on. I mean, if there are people, if the cities want to loan money, which I don't necessarily think is a good policy at all, but if they do get into that business, then you can't discriminate on race. I mean, that would be racist after all, wouldn't it? Um, Here's another one. $10.2 million to support the convention center intended to maintain good paying jobs and keep San Diego poised for its tourism economy to rebound. But really, who should be paying for the convention center? Now, okay, maybe they're paid by the city, but ultimately that money should come from the tenants 
that rent the space in the convention center, like Comic-Con, right? So doing otherwise would be, frankly, a form of corporate welfare if they were able to be subsidized and have the employees of the convention center paid by city government and preventing those corporations from paying, you know, technically their, their share of it. To me, that's interesting. Now, here's the other crazy one. $10 million to build quality and complete sexy streets in communities of concern. Um, now, this caught my attention. I'm like, what in the hell is a sexy street? And at first I thought it was like, you know, when they have a street and they kind of prevent cars on it so people can walk freely across the street and people can set up cafes in the middle of the street. I thought that's what where this was going. But what this is, is just like legit infrastructure improvements. It's repairing roads, repairing sidewalks. But Todd Gloria is putting a, a spin on it, you know, a, a marketing spin, calling them sexy streets. I'm like, okay, if you want to fix the streets, yeah, do that. That's legit. Um, investing $22.1 million in the city's workforce to make their salaries more competitive with other local agencies. So you look at this and you're thinking, what's going on here? You, you want to pay your employees more. Okay, I get it. But then go look look who endorsed Todd Gloria in his race for mayor. Sure enough, the city employees of the city of San Diego endorsed Todd Gloria. So there's that quid pro quo thing we see. Again, if people want to unionize, I'm all for unionization, especially in the private sector. If, if, if people want to organize and, you know, remember, they, they tried to organize Amazon workers and they chose not to be unionized. It kind of made sense in that case because in Alabama, the minimum wage is seven twenty five, and they're already making $15 an hour at Amazon. That's their own corporate minimum wage. But for public employee unions, it, there's a level of corruption that exists in cases like this. The city, government, workforce, their employees endorse Todd Gloria, help him get elected mayor of the city of San Diego. Now he's proposing a $22.1 million, um, quote unquote, investment in his people. But it's essentially a pay raise. So um, also $10 million for um, help for the homeless. And we just had our Father Joe podcast. That was a that was a fun event. And thank you, Catherine Cloward, for setting that one up. Uh, my interview with. Uh, Father Joe was on Friday, and that was a lot of fun. But $10 million more for the, the homelessness crisis. And then $4 million in savings with across-the-board decreases in police overtime. Because, yeah, when the police rack up overtime, you know, they're getting, I don't know, double pay or maybe more. Um, and, yeah, cutting back on overtime is a smart policy. But it's look making him try to look heroic by saving money, right, by defunding the police. But while he's cutting $4 million over here, he's increasing the police $19 million over there. So keep your eye on the other hand. So some interesting comments. Oh, here's the stats on the, the crime stats. I, I thought I misplaced this. But anyway, I shared most of the major ideas on that. But I, don't, I just – there's a lot of interesting stuff there and – you know, I live in Poway, but I only live probably a half a mile from the city limit to the city of San Diego. So these comments that are in this article are very closely connected to my own life here. But I think it's interesting. Um, defunding the police is the big movement. He wants to give more money to the police, but yet he's endorsed by the police, Mayor Todd Gloria. I love the money going to um, Pure Project, uh, Pure Water Project. 
because um, I think that's going to save us, especially in drought, California. Um, we're essentially a desert up against the beach. I think if you have pure water project and the desalinization in in, in Carlsbad, and you know we've already built up some of the dams here in San Diego County, like San Vicente, that's how we're going to have more water for for us here in the county. And I think that's a good move. Um, but some of the there's some questionable things in there which I commented on. Um, okay, so what is left in our podcast? God, we're in an hour and 23 minutes. There's still I want to comment on Poway and. I know a lot of my listeners and viewers are from Poway, and I'm in Poway. We've interviewed so many people from Poway, Poway political candidates, incumbents, and challengers for Poway mayor, Poway city council, Poway school board have joined me in this podcast. I'm always so honored. I enjoy those discussions. But a lot of really interesting people in Poway here, athletes, entrepreneurs, community activists um, have all joined me here Um in the podcast, back when we had people in the podcast studio, which I'm hoping to do very soon. I'm I'm fully vaccinated. And hopefully if my guest is fully vaccinated, we should bring them in and we don't have to do these remote interviews, um, you know, like on Zoom. We can do them face to face, which I'm looking forward to getting back to. Um, but let's talk about Poway here for a minute. Uh, but before I do, you know, I just want to reach out to you. One way you could really help us in this podcast is just sharing these episodes, you know, if, if you like what we're doing, tell a friend, you know, give us a thumbs up on this episode. If you think we deserve it, um, you know, a, a like or a, or a love on Facebook, um, subscribe. If you can, you can subscribe on our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to all of our podcast, uh, platforms like Apple podcasts and Spotify. If you subscribe, you'll get notified when the next episode is available. But definitely, you know, your participation, I I thank you so much if you're listening, if you're watching, and especially if you're participating in the live stream. I'm really helpful for that. Oh, Fernando Garcia. Thank you with the big thumbs up. Fernando uh, joined me here. Gosh, you were a candidate for office. I think it was in the 2020 election cycle, correct? Uh, Where you were running for Congress. And boy, was I glad to have a conversation with you. Uh, Fernando uh, Garcia running as an independent uh, for Congress, for the House of Representatives. It was so refreshing to have an independent candidate that wasn't a Republican or a Democrat that approached uh, issues with a rational mind, not a party-driven agenda. Uh, Thank you, Fernando, and thank you for your support. I see you giving a lot of our episodes thumbs up, and I appreciate your your help. Um, Okay, so let's move on. And, uh, and hey, the, the, the likes came up a little bit on the live stream. Thank you. Okay, we're going to talk about Poway. And this is another article in the Poway Chieftain or Pomerado News. And the title is Thrift Stores, Landscape Maintenance on the Poway City Council Agenda. And I, I want to talk about the thrift stores in Poway. And I, I, gosh, I did a podcast about them a year or two ago. And just to tee it up for everybody. Uh, on Poway Road, which is the main road through our city, there is a huge construction project going on right now. They're, they're um, building a lot of mixed use where there's condos and apartments and retail operations side by side in, in the same facility. They've got a project called the Outpost going on, another one called the Poway Commons. And there's a third project being put together by a company called Fairfield where they've Basically, they purchased the property that is currently 
has had for the longest time, for decades, has been the Poway Fun Bowl, the Poway Bowling Alley, and the Poway Thrift Stores, right? And they're going to transform this property into more apartments, more housing. And we do need housing in, in, in San Diego County, in Poway. We have a housing crisis. I just saw that the median home value in San Diego County is now $680,000 because there's so little supply and such massive demand. And rents in San Diego are crazy, too, because we have a housing crisis. So they're building more housing, which generally I'm supportive of. But unfortunately, there are some victims as this whole thing rolls out. And one of them are the thrift stores because they were renting property. They were leasing property. And... Um, the oh, by the way on the live stream I see Fernando Garcia, uh, the fifty third district yeah and thank you for the opportunity thank you Fernando I enjoyed having you Elaine Mason says Candace I'm not sure what you're speaking of Elaine are you talking about Candace Owens um, at any rate the thrift stores have been the victim in this this situation well frankly the bowling alley too um, but the thrift stores were run by a lot of the churches where they would get donations. And then they would sell these products, you know, these used merchandise. And that was a fundraiser for the churches. And it was also a nice thing for people in the community. And it's definitely lower income people were able to use the thrift stores and they could take advantage of, you know, sometimes you could find some smoking opportunities in thrift stores. I'm, I remember I, especially when I was younger, I would go into thrift stores all the time. So there's a lot of sympathy for these thrift stores, but they're being displaced by this Fairfield development. And there's, there, there's, there's really nowhere for them to go because the city of Poway has a special zoning category just for thrift stores that prevents them from just renting a facility somewhere else in the city because of the zoning requirements. Um, Elaine Mason on the live stream says, a friend who lives in Poway across from one of the proposed developments. Okay, so me just giving a shout out to your friend Candace, maybe linking her to join us here in the live stream here on the podcast. Well, the thrift stores were displaced. There was really nowhere for them to go. People were concerned. And so there's been a bit of an outcry here in Poway, people trying to find a solution for them. And the the city council is now opening up the opportunity for them to be zoned in other areas of the city. And a lot of this is being led by um, Kaylin Frank, who is the representative of – she's a city council member that represents the South Poway area. And to her credit, she's stepping up because these thrift stores are in South Poway. And a lot of the uh, the primary – Customers of these, or at least the people that are being most outspoken about thrift stores, are also from South Poway. So kudos to her for at least organizing this. So this proposed amendment would allow the thrift stores to operate in commercial office and mixed-use land development and also antique shops and consignment. I mean, the crazy part of this is, is that there are all these rigorous rules on where a thrift store can set up operation. And to me, this is mind-blowing. This is just nuts. If, if a thrift store needs to move, they should be able to negotiate with any landowner. You know, there's, there's vacant property on Poway Road. There's other vacant property in other parts of Poway that's commercial that can be used by a thrift store. But because of their designation, they're not allowed to move in there. 
Um, and I, I just, I just think this is just a foolish idea to, to regulate the thrift stores differently than you would regulate other kinds of stores. Now, some of the people are concerned like, well, we're building these brand new housing developments and I don't want to have thrift stores next to my brand new condo. Okay, I get that. Um, I get that because a brand spanking new condo is all going to be shiny and new and you're going to have your new planned community and then you don't want, you know, lower income people or, or, or use merchandise being sold and maybe there's a little bit of that aloofness. I understand that. But if this is a brand new development that's going to have retail spaces, that's going to be expensive retail, right? The market generally has a way of sorting this sort of thing out that thrift stores by their very nature are not highly profitable um, you know, business entities. They are going to be trying to minimize the amount that they spend on their rent, just like any business would. But their objective, their primary objective is to fundraise, for their churches. So they're going to seek low rent opportunities. They're probably going to be seeking rent in lower, like lower end buildings, maybe older buildings that are going to have lower priced rent. This whole thing has a way of sorting itself out, but the city feels a need to go in there and centrally plan and decide you can go here and you can go there. And we only want these kinds of businesses on this section of Poway Road. To me, this is just a case of overregulation. Now, What's interesting is, is that there are also special designations for antique shops and consignment stores and where they can operate. And then they have to get conditional use permits. And I'm thinking, well, why in the hell would a thrift store need a special permit? Apparently they need it because they have to regulate things like drop-off locations and outdoor signage. But I'm thinking, well, drop-off locations, well, every business gets deliveries of some kind. Any retail business, if you're a grocery store, you're getting deliveries of food. If you're, uh, you sell apparel, you're getting deliveries of new product all the time. Thrift stores are getting deliveries of product. Now, granted, it's delivered a little bit differently. It's delivered, you know, by independent people rather than a 40-foot semi-truck, you know, that's bringing in cases and cases of food at a grocery store. But still, to me, it's just odd that these need to be regulated in a special category. And this is what I struggle with. I, off, I think our city council is, is over-regulating this process. Um, a couple more comments here on the live stream. Uh, Lauer Web Design says, zonage is ridiculous everywhere. Yeah, you know, zoning as a general rule affects housing especially, Zoning is what prevents development in open space. Zoning is what prevents certain lots being transformed where a single family home can be turned into, let's say, a four unit apartment building. Zoning laws like this is what makes housing so damn expensive because it limits supply. It limits construction of new facilities. New housing uh, units are limited because of zoning laws. And as a result, when you have massive demand to live in California, to live in America's finest city, San Diego, or to live in the city in the country, uh, Poway, California, this is a very desirable place to live. And when you have zoning laws that prevent construction, that makes prices of real estate 
to purchase or to rent go crazy high. So zoning, I always am not a fan of it. I think it's a NIMBY law, right? It's not in my backyard. It's a way for people to use the government to keep undesirables out. And in this case, it's a way in commercial property to keep thrift stores out, which I think, A, is immoral for you to prevent a thrift store from setting up business, just like you have the opportunity to set up business. But I think it creates all kinds of distortions in the marketplace. And in this case, it's creating a crisis for these thrift stores because they may not have anywhere to go, not because they can't negotiate a deal with their landlord, but because it would be illegal for them to rent space in many parts of the city. Now, they're now talking about expanding this into um, – they say they say they're they're they want to keep them out of commercial office space areas, um, but maybe they're considering having them available. I think is it in um, mixed use areas and commercial general. Um, those are potential categories of zoning that they might let the thrift stores set up shop. And so this is something that Kaylin Frank is pushing forward, and I, I think you know good for her for expanding it. Now, granted, the city council in Poway needs to approve this, but I, I just think this is an interesting story because we saw a lot of these zoning challenges pop up when here in Poway, when we approved the farm in Poway, where the voters had to vote to change the zoning of the old Stone Ridge Golf Course to from open space recreational to housing. It required a vote of the people. To me, that's nuts. Now, if the, if the golf course guy wants to convert his land into housing, he should be able to do it. It's his land. And besides, preventing construction of homes on that property just makes housing expensive. Now, granted, it makes, how, it makes everyone's property that lives in the area go up when you limit construction around you because there's less supply. It's just Econ 101. Um, but I, I'm, you know, granted, if, by preventing the farm in Poway from being approved, Preventing that land from being developed would have been great for me personally. I, my property would have gone up in price um, as a result. But and to me, it's just immoral and it's it's a bad policy in general. Um, so it's interesting. Zoning laws play a role in residential property. But now we're seeing zoning laws creating these perversions in the commercial property zones and having an effect on these churches that just want to set up a thrift store to sell merchandise. I mean, some would say it's a service to the community. And frankly, you could argue every business is a service to the community because the business serves the needs of those customers. But these zoning laws make it hard. Now, the city council is in the next meeting, maybe it's tonight, I'm not sure, that they're going to consider relaxing those zoning laws. They're not going to let thrift stores go anywhere, but they're going to open up more areas in the commercial the commercial zones in Poway where they'll be eligible to set up shop. And I think that's good. Uh, Lauer Web Design says permits for signage, zoning. Honestly, it's ridiculous. Thank God they have someone pushing in their favor. Yet, you know, the sign regulations in Poway are interesting. It used to be very hardcore that you couldn't have signs more than I think it was like some limit of height. I don't, I don't know what the exact number was, but then they create all these exceptions to the rule and they approve signs on some buildings 
that are outside the scope of it, or they'll allow, they have a limit on height for some buildings, but then they make exceptions for other people. To me, it's nuts. I mean, in my opinion, if you own the property, you should be able to set up a sign on your own property, period. (laughs) End of discussion, because it's your property. Um, But, you know, again, it's nimbyism, right? People want to control other people. People want to control the property rights of other people. People essentially want to violate the rights of other people. That's the problem. Um, When you get a bunch of like Mrs. Kravitz from Bewitched, you know, like looking out her window, trying to micromanage all the people around her and think on everyone. And and to me, it's the wrong approach. Uh, But yeah, the zoning just can be onerous. Uh, Elaine Mason on the live stream says, while I agree that we need additional housing, I do not support removing and displacing established businesses. Well, you know, a lot of people don't agree. People, a lot of people love to have the Poway Fun Bowl back in town. A lot of people want to leave the, the thrift stores where they are, right? But who should decide? I mean, really, who should decide? Now, in my opinion, the property owner should decide. It's his or her property, their property. They should be able to decide whether they want to put apartments on it or a bowling alley on it. It's up to them. It's a, you know, in this case, it's a business opportunity. They can assess the pros and cons of the various options and make the decision that makes the most sense for them. You know, as long as they're not violating the rights of the other people, as long as they're not putting like a chemical plant there that's spewing toxins into the air that's harming other people. Yeah, you can't do that. But really, I think now, granted, we all wish we will all love to have the housing somewhere else. Just leave my thrift stores and bowling alley alone. Yeah, I understand that. You want to keep the old charm of your town, you know, uh, celebrate its its history. I understand that. But it's not our property. <laughs> it's the property owner's property. They are the ones that should decide. Um, Lauer Web Design says, what's your position or title? Because you seem rather level-headed. Maybe you should run for mayor <laughs> or commissioner or whatever they do in Poway. Um Okay, I'm. I'm. Uh, my name's John Riley. I have a podcast. It's called the John Riley Project. Um, I ran for office actually in 2014. I ran for Poway School Board, and I lost. I lost by one percent. I like to think of myself as level-headed, and thank you for that approach. I'm not uh, in a political party. I'm not a Republican, and I'm not Democrat. Um, I have my own opinions about issues, and I've shared quite a few in this episode. Uh, but I do not hold any official position. Um, other than I'm the owner of my own small business and I'm a property owner here in Poway and a, a husband and a father. And um, I used to be the, the I used to be the president of the Poway National Little League. But that was like 10 years ago. Is that my official title? Maybe that's my last official title. Um, but thank you for that. I appreciate that that comment. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I like to be level headed about this. And that's part of the reason I do this podcast. I like this to be a, an exchange of ideas. And I prefer having guests where I can listen and learn and I can share my own thoughts and comments and people can learn from me and we all share and we are all better for it. And sometimes we'll just agree to disagree and that's okay. But where we do disagree, I love finding out why people believe the way they believe. Now I may not be able to sway them in my direction 
and they may not be able to sway me in, in their direction. But I always want to understand like the morality that's underlying their opinion on why they believe what they believe. And I think that's really important for us to understand because in this world of, you know, um, I mean, there's so many challenges in society and in the, we see it all in the news media, but even here in our local community of Poway, there's certain levels of strife and discord. There's also a lot of harmony and peace, which is great, but there's definitely some strife, strife and discord. Sometimes people battle on the policies without really getting down deeper to why people believe the way they believe. And that's what I try to do in this podcast is to understand that. So that's why a lot of times when I'm making my case on a lot of these issues, I explain my rationale and why I believe the way I do. And a lot of times it comes down to our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are granted in our Declaration of Independence. But frankly, this whole notion of individual rights is something that was our first articulated by Aristotle, like, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, rediscovered by Aquinas, right? And which led to the Enlightenment. I mean, it actually led to the Renaissance and eventually the Enlightenment, the age of reason, the age of science. Um, I'm a big believer in individual rights and when America's founding, the, the preamble to the Declaration of Independence to me is one of the most beautiful written pieces of, of government documentation where it, it clearly outlines the rights of people, that we have rights in and of ourselves. We have a right to our own life and to manage our own life, and we have the liberty to make our own choices, and really our moral goal in life should be to pursue our happiness. Pursue our happiness, pursue my happiness, not someone else's, but I can pursue my happiness without any shame or guilt. I can be all that I can be, to use a term that the military enjoys using, be all that you can be. I can flourish in my life. To me, those are the, those are the, the principles, the kind of the moral underpinning of a lot of how I see the world. And you'll see that come out in a lot of these podcast episodes. Um, and Laura Web Design says, I agree 100, 100%. So thank you for that. Okay, uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. And I got a couple of quotes. I always like to finish my um, podcasts with a few good quotes. And we spent the first hour of this podcast talking about police reform, criminal justice reform. And I thought I offered up a couple of really good ideas. And I'm going back to my notes here. Um, my, my recommendations for criminal justice reform that would get us out of these terrible situations. One is to end qualified immunity. One is to end civil asset forfeiture. One is to end the drug war. One is to end victimless crimes end militarization of the police end mandatory minimums and end the death penalty. Those are my recommendations, but I have a couple of quotes and these are about criminal justice. And the first one is from President Barack Obama. And this is sort of the, I guess the, how would I say this? The, the more standard uh, commentary about the police, that especially hear people in 
political positions of power will comment this way. And Barack Obama said, understand our police officers put their lives on the line for us every single day. They've got a tough job to do to maintain public safety and hold accountable those who break the law. And he's right. Um, you know, the police are a, a critical, critically important part of um, ensuring that our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are secured. Because you have to have a criminal justice system that holds rights violators to account. People that steal or murder, assault, rape, fraud, any of those violations of other people's rights. There needs to be a system to hold those people to account. The police and the courts and then the prison system are all part of that. The police play a critical role. And yeah, they do put their lives on the line every day. Now, in many cases, I think they go beyond the line, which I've commented about in some of my police reform or criminal justice reform ideas. But yeah, I mean, they maintain public safety, hold people account that break the law. Now, the tangent on that is I think a lot of laws should be thrown out the window. I think there's a lot of laws that shouldn't be laws in the first place. I bet you right now we're breaking laws every day that we don't even realize we're breaking. Um. So, yeah, they got to hold people accountable to the law, but I think we need to really reexamine what those laws should be. And the second comment is from Joy Reid. And Joy Reid is a commentator. She has her own show on MSNBC, and she's a lefty. Um, and I did a podcast episode about Joy Reid, gosh, maybe about a month ago or so. Um, and she definitely sees the world through the prism of race. Everything is somehow related to race with her. She's she's black and she's very good at what she does. Uh, I watch her show frequently, but she's definitely has a, her own perspective. And she says, the criminal justice system in the United States is designed to do two things really well. Number one, to railroad black and brown bodies into prison and two, to keep police officers out of it. And you know what? She's 100% right. Um, the, if you look at our incarceration system, we have mass incarceration. We have the highest percentage of people in prison of any nation on earth, even though we claim to be the land of liberty, the land of freedom. Yet we're limited. We're putting people in cages. <laughs> well, we have people in cages at the border right now which is nuts, insane, the exact opposite of give us your poor and huddled masses. Um, that's a whole other topic. Um, but we have a mass incarceration situation, a problem, a mass incarceration problem right now. It's a crisis. There's so many people in prison. The prisons are overcrowded. They're building private prisons, which is a whole other can of worms. But we got too many damn people in prison, a lot of them in prison for, frankly, bogus reasons. And they are disproportionately people of color. And, you know, do people of color commit more crimes than whites? I mean, we can get into the data, but not to the same degree of, of disproportionality of who's in prison. I mean, drug use is, is generally used equitably amongst different races, yet it's blacks and browns that are in jail for drug crimes to a far higher degree than whites are. So she's right. The criminal justice system puts more black and brown bodies in prison. That's partly designed to do that. 
The whole war on drugs was invented by President Nixon to control the hippies and control the blacks. So she's right there. And then secondly, to keep police officers out of prison. That's the whole qualified immunity bit. The police officers can kill innocent people and they're just like, oh, sorry, that was just part of my job. I'm not responsible for that. I mean, police officers, if they, in many cases, if they are held to account, a lot of times they get off because there is this, there's a certain sentiment amongst people in America that will automatically defend the police no matter what. That's the whole Blue Lives Matter piece where it's, they're not looking at it rationally, objectively, and then judging bad behavior by the police and not finding ways to protect that bad behavior. So I think in many ways, Joy Reid is right. And I think also President Obama is right on this as well. Now, again, never mind the fact I'm not a Democrat. I didn't support Obama at all. But I, it's, a, it's a fair quote to bring up so I can show both sides. Um, Lauer Web Design says, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, our posterity. Pardon me. Yeah, that's from the Constitution. Our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is from the Declaration. Oh, you go on to say, yeah, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I always have a problem with that portion of the Constitution. And, you know, provide for the common defense. Okay, I get that. That's protecting our rights, essentially, from, you know, invaders or people that want to violate our rights. Promote the general welfare, to me, is a really tricky phrase. Because what's the general welfare? It could be almost anything. Um, you, you could come up with any government program and you can make a case that it's general welfare. To me, that is too broad, too unspecific. Um, I, I, I always have challenges with that. And then secure the blessings of liberty and, uh, and to ourselves and our posterity. But a lot of cases, the, when people want to promote the general welfare by creating all these government pro- agencies and these government programs and government initiatives, they fund that by violating the liberty of taxpayers <laughs> that are forced to fund things that they may not agree with. So to me, there's a lot of contradiction in that. And I think a lot of it's because the concept of promoting the general welfare may have meant something very different in 17, what would it have been, 83? When was the Constitution written? Uh, I think it was like 83. And then the Bill of Rights was that like in 1791, um, something like that. So I think the promote the general welfare it is it's just very vague. Um, and I, I, that opens up, in my opinion, a can of worms. Um, Elaine Mason says, thank you, John Riley, for being a calm, rational voice of reason. Well, thank you, Elaine. Um, refreshing change for what I am usually seeing and hearing these days. While I do not agree with some of your stances, removing qualified immunity is one. And yeah, that is a, that is a controversial topic. I know a lot of people are on the other side. Uh, they strongly believe in qualified immunity. Um, Law enforcement officers do not make the laws. They are tasked with enforcing them by their employers. We need to go higher up the food chain to affect change. You're, you're absolutely right. The police officers are there just to enforce the law. Now, sometimes the police officers go beyond that. Sometimes 
like in the case of Derek Chauvin, they didn't just apprehend George Floyd, which would have been enforcing the law, right? He tried to pass a counterfeit bill, apprehending him, handcuffing him, putting him in the back of a police car and bring him to the police station would have been appropriate to arrest him. But instead, they killed him. Uh, Derek Chauvin killed him. So that's going beyond the scope. That's more than just enforcing the law. But I do agree with you. The problem is not the co- – well, there is a little bit of a problem within the culture of the police. But still, to your broader point, the problem is up the food chain. The problem are the policies and laws that are enacted in this nation. But further up, you know, upstream from that, they always say politics is downstream from culture. There are issues in our culture that drive the policies that drive what the police effectively do. Um, we can go back to issues in our culture, but then what drives culture? A lot of that's philosophy and philosophy, like the concept of our individual rights is a philosophical idea that used to be something that we celebrated in America, unless you were black, (laughs) which is a problem, which was hypocrisy, but we used to celebrate America as the land of the free where you can pursue opportunity and and you, there were no limits on what you could pursue as long as you didn't harm someone else. We've gotten away from that. I think our philosophy in America has changed. It's changed the culture, which has in effect changed the type of people that are elected who then are now creating these different kinds of laws and those laws empower the police. And then in some cases, the police, I think, in, in not all the time, but in some cases are acting overly aggressive to enforce what I believe are bad or immoral laws. But to your point, yes, the problem you have to go higher up the food chain or or up the, the, the stream to go and affect it. Uh, Elaine asks, how about people just comply with lawful orders? Live to see your day in court. If you resist and fight, the outcome is always a negative one. Yeah, that's the sucky part of this is that if you are arrested, you know, you, you just you can't resist because the minute you do, they'll see you as a threat and then your life becomes more complicated. If you fight back, you could be shot and killed. If you um, decide that you don't want to take that breathalyzer test, you know, you have you go to jail for a period of time. You have your driving privileges revoked. If you the my I believe the same as you, even if you disagree with the law. If you are being arrested or being pulled over for any of those cases, the rational thing to do is just to go along with it. It's just to follow the orders and and then fight the case later because you'll never fight it and win it with a cop. You're going to end up making your situation worse. And that's so frustrating, especially if you're maybe you're you're black you're being pulled over because you know you're being pulled over for your race. You know it's not just. You know the cop is an a-hole. You know the whole situation is stacked against you. It's natural that you're going to want to push back, you know, either verbally or maybe even mentally, uh, maybe even um, physically. But you can't do that because you're just going to make your situation worse. Um Lauer Web Design says it was signed on September 17th, 1787. So that's the Constitution. Um, This is the UCR in reference to my previous comment. Um, 
what's UCR? Are you talking about the, uh, the Constitution? I think you are. Okay, we've gone on long enough. Okay, this is the John Riley Project. This is a two-hour podcast. Thank you, everyone, for been listening, for watching. And we do this every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 2. Uh, you can tune in on YouTube or on Facebook. Of course, all the recorded versions are on all the audio platforms, podcast platforms. We missed the show on Monday. I wasn't up for it. I wasn't feeling well on Monday. But I'm back in action Wednesday. I'll be back again on Friday at two o'clock and look forward to chatting with you then. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.